0: It's hard to believe two weeks makes it feel like it's been a long time, but it does feel like it's been a long time, so it's really nice to be home. It's a beautiful sunny day for a change. There's no, uh, no storm clouds brewing on the horizon, at least yet, so uh, it's uh, an all-around great day and nice to have so many visitors here as well. Uh, I think we, we have some visitors from out west, so didn't get a chance to welcome you earlier in the service, but welcome here. To the uh, Jansen clan, nice to have you here. And uh, to any other visitors here this morning as well. Great to have you here with us. I would invite you now, as we prepare to hear from God's word, to bow with me once again, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great provision for us in every aspect of life you have provided. You have provided for us, Lord, physically, uh, in so many ways. The ways that we take for granted, uh, you have provided. And you are a good God who gives good gifts to his children. And so we thank you. Thank you, Father, for your great provision, most importantly in the spiritual realm. You have provided the way of salvation for us. And that through faith in your Son, Lord Jesus, we can enter into this salvation. And so we thank you for this great provision. We thank you, Lord, for your provision of the Holy Spirit, who now enables us in faith to live out this life you have called us to that it's not by power or might but by your spirit that we are able to live a life that's pleasing to you that is meaningful in service towards others and advances your kingdom so we thank you for all of these many provisions you have made for us thank you lord for this great land of canada that you have placed us into that we have such freedom here to live out this faith boldly uh, to not have any concerns about how we might be perceived or how we might be received And so we thank you for this freedom we have to preach your word and to discuss it freely. And so, Lord, now as we prepare to enter that word, we pray that again by your spirit you would guide our our thoughts, guide us into understanding. I pray that you would give me clarity and boldness to speak your word that you have laid on my heart for this morning. In your name I ask it, Lord Jesus. Amen. My sermon title for this morning is probably something that's familiar to all of you. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Does anyone recognize that line? A couple of you. Okay, good. That's where we're going to be heading this morning, is delving into the, the meaning of those words. I'm going to share with you a story of a white American couple who adopted an Asian boy from South Korea. They named him Eric. Several years went by, Eric was now five years old. One day the family was in a restaurant having lunch and Eric struck up a conversation with a slightly older boy at the next table. Soon the older boy, noticing that Eric was Asian and his parents obviously weren't, asked Eric, why don't you look like your mom? To which Eric quickly replied, because she's a girl. (laughs) Well, duh. (laughs) Isn't that a great answer? You know, the son didn't see any difference between himself and his mother other than the fact that she was a girl and he was a boy. But, you know, we as humans have a strange tendency, a sixth sense, if you will, of quickly noticing when people are different from us or from each other. Without even realizing what we're doing, we quickly pick up on differences. We're almost programmed, trained to to discern and notice differences. And without even realizing what we're doing most of the time, we categorize people very quickly. By how they look, by how they speak, we instantly will make some type of a judgment on this person, we'll instantly put them in some type of a category, and discriminate accordingly. Our world is in troubled times. If any of you have been paying attention to what's going on outside of the bubble of Clarny, Manitoba, I think you would agree with that statement. Divisions and prejudice, riots and racism, coups and terrorism, abducted children, and mass murder. These have all been taken from the past week's headlines. In the United States, the Black Lives Matter movement seeks to bring attention to police violence against the African American community. While the All Lives Matter slogan emerged in an attempt to create a united stance for all ethnicities... However, this slogan has since been accused of attempting to undermine and dismiss the issues facing the black community. Is anyone confused by any of this yet? Have you been keeping up to date with all of the back and forth on these sorts of issues? Well, if you're confused, you're not alone. The confusion surrounding the issue was highlighted this past week at the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, when the men's quartet named the Tenors performed the Canadian National Anthem. Now, I happen to be watching this as it unfolded, And I noticed that they had sung something that sounded a little bit different, but I wasn't paying close enough attention to pick up what was actually sung. And it was only later on that I picked up that during his solo portion, one of the singers had changed a line in the song from with glowing hearts we see thee rise, the true north strong and free, to we're all brothers and sisters, all lives matter to the brave. Now you can agree or disagree with the message, I personally don't agree with changing the lyrics to a national anthem, but nonetheless, you've probably all heard a little bit of the controversy that followed his actions. Now, you would think that with all of the collective words spilled and spoken in the news media, the words printed in newspapers and on internet blogs and comment sections, all of the banter and argument back and forth, you'd think that there would be progress being made, but it's the exact opposite. All I see is more confusion and more anger. So while people are arguing over slogans and hashtags, the divisions and prejudices and hatred is only increasing, not decreasing. At the same time, we have to look a little further abroad. The tensions between Arab Muslims and the Western world is only increasing as terrorist attacks continue, and most recently, the tragic events in Nice, France. Much closer to home, we have issues as well. If you've been paying attention to the news over the past months, the First Nations communities on the reserves in northern Manitoba are facing an epidemic of youth suicides and attempted suicides with seemingly no hope on the horizon. Now, it's very easy for us, in our very, very blessed bubble of Clarny, Manitoba, to just sit here and say, that's all out there. It doesn't affect me. I'll just stay in my predominantly white, predominantly Christian circles in the safe haven of Clarny and my life will go on unaffected. And you know what? For the most part, that's true. We can remain in our safe little haven. We can do nothing. And we can hope that the troubles that face the rest of the world don't wash up on our shores. But as I... See as I hear all of the many things going on in the world around us, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am not afforded this luxury. No true disciple of Jesus Christ is afforded the luxury of doing nothing. In John chapter 12, having yet again predicted his death to his disciples, Jesus tells them plainly in verse 25 and 26, The man who loves his life will lose it. Well, the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. Now, this is fairly straightforward, especially when we consider that Jesus was heading to the cross. He said, my way is not an easy way, but it is the way to eternal life. Where I am, my servant will be also. Jesus did not take the easy path of remaining in his safe haven, for if he had, he never would have come to earth. Heaven was as safe a haven as you could find. He didn't just stay there watching from afar as the world went to hell, for that is where it is headed. No, Jesus left heaven and went to the cross, so we didn't have to. So for us to be his servants, Jesus says we must follow his example. We cannot remain in a safe haven. So two questions must be asked. First, what is God's solution? What is God's solution for all that is ailing the troubled world that we live in? What is his answer? And secondly, what would God have me do about it? You see, there's the big level of what God provided, and then there's the personal level of what's my part in all of this. So let's look at the first big level this morning. What is God's solution for all of the troubles of the world? Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 3, and let's look a little bit more closely at these incredible verses that the Apostle Paul wrote. We're going to focus on verses 26 to 28, and we'll broaden a little bit into context from there. Let's begin reading verse 26 of Galatians 3. You are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, in the context of the Galatian Church, a faction existed that argued that the Gentile believers must also keep the Mosaic law if they wish to be in the church. So these Jews, they said it was not enough that these Gentiles be baptized, they also needed to be circumcised, and they needed to keep the other mosaic laws such as the dietary laws and their numerous other laws and traditions. They were essentially saying that you must become a Jew before you can become a true christian now of course paul knew that this was flat out wrong and so he argued fiercely against these judaizers as they were known that if they were made acceptable to god by keeping laws and regulations the traditions of the mosaic covenant then they did not need christ at all it was one or the other it could not be both And so in Galatians chapter 3 and verses 23 to 25, Paul describes that the true function of the law was like this. Verse 23, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, the English word translated here as guardian comes from the Greek word pedagogue. Has anyone heard of the word pedagogue before? Has anyone heard that word? It's usually associated with teaching, right? Yeah, you've heard of uh, pedagogy, I believe, or something like that. And so it's associated with teaching. Now, the original context in the Greek, the pedagogue was not primarily a teacher. Now, you might not have known this, but in my research, I learned that the primary role of the pedagogue was to act more as a law enforcer and a protector of the children to prepare them for the teacher. So the pedagogue's job was as a slave, attached to a household, they would escort the children to school, they would be the disciplinarian to make sure they were doing their homework, paying attention and listening, and the teacher would be the one who would do the instruction. The pedagogue was the enforcer. So in other words, when Paul says that the law was like a pedagogue, He is saying that it is guarding and preparing the children, which was them, to receive their inheritance from the true teacher, who is Jesus Christ. That the inheritance of salvation came through him, not through the pedagogue. The pedagogue was just a means to point them in the right direction. And so in verse 25, Paul declares that this day has arrived. The pedagogue has been relieved of his duties, The law of Moses is no longer in charge. Jesus is. And the key that opens the prison door of the law, Paul writes, is our baptism into Christ. And so what is the result of this baptism? Verse 26, he says, You are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You are all. Now, I don't know if we can translate or interpret this any other way, but to me, all means all, doesn't it? All. The ground had been leveled, and so now Gentile or Jew, it made no difference. There was no more distinction between them. And just in case Paul hadn't made his point clear enough, he then continues into this very, very bold statement. One of the most revolutionary statements in all of history, verse 28. He says this, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All one. Really? Gentiles, slaves, and women, they're equal to us? Is what they were thinking. To fully appreciate Paul's revolutionary statement, we have to understand the first century context. You see, this statement may not be shocking to you, but I guarantee you it was shocking to the Galatian church. To fully appreciate, we have to understand, every single day, a Pharisee man prayed a prayer of thanksgiving that went something like this. I thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Women, how does that rub you? <laughs> you like that? Every day a Pharisee prayed a prayer of thanksgiving that he was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Now remember, Paul knew what he was talking about, for he had been a Pharisee himself. He had prayed this prayer many times before. He knew that Jewish men thought that first, they were the exclusive chosen people of God, he knew that second, they thought that God made non Jews. Gentiles, all other people, other than Jews. He knew that they thought God had created them simply to be fuel for the fires of hell. And that third, he knew that they thought and even debated as to whether or not women had souls at all. So now in direct rebuttal of this prayer, Paul now writes, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. God's kingdom is not about divisions and prejudices. It is all about oneness in Christ. Now, at the risk of sounding overly political, the solution to discrimination, racism, hatred, and violence, it will not be found in a president, a prime minister, or a political program. It will not be found in a parade, a protest, or a police force. The one and only solution to all of the many divisions in the world today is found in one person and one person only. The Bible names that one person as Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can bring all of the world's people under one roof, around one table, as the children of God. Rich or poor, black or white, Arab or Asian, First Nations or Mennonite. It simply won't matter. In Christ, there are no more barriers. There are no more divisions. It won't matter. When you're in the kingdom, you won't care who you're sitting next to around the table. It won't matter to you. Because whoever it is will be your brother or sister in Christ. That's God's word. That's God's solution. Amen? He makes it as plain as it could possibly be. In Christ There are no more distinctions. Now let's hit the pause button for a moment. And let me just say what some of you might be thinking. Pastor, that's a beautiful theory. And it'll work in God's kingdom when Jesus returns. But today, in this reality, it'll never work. Well, let me just tell you that you're probably not alone in thinking that. I've thought that. So let me answer that this way. Most of us have very little concept of how deep the resentment and hatred runs between modern-day Muslim Palestinians and the Jews. Now, we can think about whatever distinctions we have between us here in Canada and and whatever sort of divisions we might have, but they are nothing in comparison to the outright animosity and hatred between the Palestinians and the Jews in modern-day Israel. You see, the Palestinians see the Jews as oppressors who stole their land, and the Jews see the Palestinians as ungrateful that they've even been allowed to stay in the land. Now, I didn't really understand any of this in any sort of a way. I'd read about it, I'd heard about it, but I didn't really understand it until taking our trip to Israel last year, and there I experienced some sense of it. I want to show you a couple of pictures because I think showing it to you will give you a a, maybe a heightened sense of understanding more than me just saying the words. So let me just show you a couple of pictures if you want to pull up the first slide. Now this first slide, just to give you context, you probably recognize what Leanne and I are standing in front of. Does anyone know the name of that? What is it? Anyone? You can say it. You're allowed to talk in church. I'm giving you permission. Pardon me? Well, it's, it's near the same location as where Solomon's temple m- might have stood. What's it called? Yeah, it's a mosque. Dome of the rock. There we go. That's what I was looking for. Took a while. Should have got you talking earlier. All right. So it's the dome of the rock. This is standing, as Paul pointed out, to where the temple once stood. This is known as the temple mount. And so here, the temple mount... This is 37 acres, the whole complex, is 37 acres of the most hotly contested soil on planet Earth. If not the most hotly contested, three religions claim this to be a holy site. Of course, Christianity, the Jews, and the Muslims all lay claim to this site. And so, to enter this site, we had to pass through... uh, Barrage of security, we had to go through a metal detector and we had to pass by guards carrying machine guns and even inside on the on the temple mount there 's guards with machine guns everywhere and so, as we finally get all through through these layers of security, we get to go inside we 're standing in front of the dome of the rock we get a couple of pictures, and even there we got harassed because uh, we weren 't supposed to be taking pictures in front of the dome of the rock and, and then these guys came over and, and uh, gave us a hard time because some of the women were apparently wearing jeans that were too tight and they had to put skirts around them and things like that. So it was, it was a, big, uh, a big commotion just to get in here then once we were there. But we managed to get this picture and they didn't see that we had taken it, so we got to keep it on our camera. They actually made some of the others delete the pictures off of their camera. So I quickly tucked mine in my pocket so I have the picture today. So after we take this picture, we head around to the other side of the courtyard. And we're, we're preparing to head out on the other side, and our tour guide is, is telling us some more information. And then as he's speaking to us, this is what happens next. And I want us to uh, listen to this, and uh, I got a video clip of it. Uh, there's not really much you can see in the video itself, but it's the audio, if, uh, if we can pull that up, that will uh, give you a bit of a sense of what we experienced that day. You can notice in the foreground already, here we go. Now, in case you didn't hear that, they were screaming, Allah Akbar. And so as we're coming down the steps, all of a sudden we hear this yelling, Allah Akbar, over and over again. And and we're kind of like, what is going on here? So I quickly pull up my camera and start videoing. You can see some of the other people in our group are doing the same thing. Turns out that uh, a group of Orthodox Jews, uh, a groom and his groomsmen, had come onto the Temple Mount on his wedding day as sort of part of his tradition or, or heritage on his wedding day, and as they approached the Temple Mount, these self-appointed guardians who would see any Jews take it upon themselves to scream Allah Akbar until they leave. So if you want to get a sense of just how visceral the, the hatred and animosity is, there it is, right in front of you. It was it was pretty crazy to be standing there and observing all of this that day. And someone asked, weren't you nervous or scared? And I wasn't really, to be perfectly honest. I noticed later that both groups were being shadowed by plainclothes, I'm assuming Mossad or some type of security agency. So the security presence was everywhere, and yet, nonetheless, this is what's happening, uh, that clash and that hatred between the two of them. And so here, into this context, I would ask the question, what possible hope for peace, let alone unity, could there possibly be between Jews and Muslims? Earlier in the trip, we had an opportunity to visit Nazareth Village. Some of you will recall me talking about Nazareth Village before as the place in Nazareth Nazareth, where they've recreated what life would have looked like in Jesus' time. And you'll see in the next slide uh, a representation of that. Our tour guide, uh, his name was Nathaniel. He is on the right of the picture in the black shirt. Our tour guide Nathaniel was a Jewish man And near the end of the tour, this is right near the end of the tour, he showed us what Jesus' woodworking shop likely would have looked like. And as you can see, this is a representation, a modern-day representation of what it must have looked like in Jesus' time. Some of the tools are there on the table, and there's the man in period dress working with the same hand tools that Jesus would have worked with. And the carpenter on the left of the picture, his name was Weil. Now, they had just finished going through all of a presentation of how some of the tools worked, and we were wrapping it up, and there was a question and answer period. And in just an impromptu moment, Nathaniel shared with us that while uh, while was an Arab and he was a Jew, they had been born as sworn enemies of one another, and yet now they were brothers in Christ. And then having said that, they both reached out and embraced each other in a big bear hug. And my trigger finger was not quite quick enough on my camera. And this picture was taken just a split second after they had finished their bear hug. And you can see from the big grin on their faces that they were both laughing about this big bear hug that they'd just given each other. And for myself, it was a powerful moment. It was a powerful moment to see with my own eyes a Jew and an Arab embrace each other. As brothers in Christ. You see, Paul's words were true then and they are still true today. Christ is the equalizer, He is the game changer. In Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile. And God's word cuts right through all of the collective noise and confusion of the world's problems. Jesus Christ is the solution. Only faith in Him can cause sworn enemies to embrace as brothers. Only Jesus can unite our fractured and hate-filled world. And it's not just a nice theory. It's reality. All are equal in Christ. All are equally loved as children of God. Are you his child? If you are his child, then praise God. And then as his child, we must also ask this question. What would God have me do? What would he have me do? In the Old Testament, God told the Israelites to set aside six cities, which were called cities of refuge. In Numbers chapter 35, verse 15, we read some of the details. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel, and for the stranger, and for the sojourner amongst you. That if anyone who kills any person, without intent or by accident, may flee there. Now, the idea was that these cities would provide refuge for any person, including Gentiles, who accidentally killed someone. Now, under the law of Moses, a relative had the right to avenge the blood of one killed, even if it was by accident. Thus, if you killed someone accidentally in some sort of an, you know, whether it's a farming accident or, or some other accident involving animals, you'd better get out of town quick, because an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth really applied. And in this context, you could go to one of these six cities of refuge and be protected under the law, that they could not harm you so long as you were in one of these six cities of refuge. Now, there's a spiritual parallel to be drawn between the Old Testament city of refuge and the New Testament church. Christ calls his church to be a city of refuge for the outcast and the poor of the world. Here there is no room for prejudice or discrimination or favoritism. In fact, we are commanded explicitly in James chapter 2 verse 1, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Doesn't get any more plain than that, does it? And Paul would point to these categories where favoritism is often shown. Ethnic differences. He says there's no longer Jew or Gentile doesn't matter what color your skin is, where you grew up, where you were born. In Christ, it doesn't matter. Don't show favoritism. Secondly, don't show favoritism in economic differences. James' example, he would go on to showing preference to the wealthy man while the poor man is, is sort of kicked to the curb. And so he says there's no longer slave nor free. This is talking about economic standing. If you're a free man, you're a wealthy man. If you're a slave, well, you're property of the wealthy man. And so he says, in Christ, these differences no longer apply. In the church, just because you're free doesn't mean you get more preferential treatment than a man who's a slave. It's the same. You are equal. There is no difference between the rich or the poor in the kingdom. And thirdly, he says, and this is a huge controversial item, especially for his day, there is no longer male nor female. There is no more gender bias or discrimination based on if you are male or female within The church. You are equal in Christ. You are equally loved. You are equally valued. Here in the church, everyone is important. Everyone has a place. We are one in Christ. And in God's kingdom, that's all that counts. As I said at the beginning, the sermon title is from the much loved children's song that goes Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. So here's the thing. I sing that song to my kids almost every single night, and for Theodore, we sing a a variation of that. I won't bother singing it for you. If you want to hear it, you can ask me later. So here's the thing, though. I sing that to my kids, and I know it's true. I know that Jesus loves my children, but does he love all the children? Does he love the child with FAS on a northern reserve in Manitoba quite as much as my child? Does he love the child living in a slum somewhere with a drug-addicted mother as much as my child? Does he love the child born in a refugee camp who knows no other existence? Does he love that child as much as my child? The answer is yes. Yes, he does. He loves all the children of the world. He does not show favoritism. He does not show partiality. He loves all deeply and equally, all of the children. In Mark 9, Jesus said this, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So in whatever way possible, whatever way you can When you welcome little children in Jesus' name, you're welcoming God the Father himself. You're welcoming the Lord. Welcome, children. Sometime between now and the beginning of September, our community is literally going to have an opportunity to become a city of refuge as we welcome two refugee families into our community. Some of the children in these families do not know life outside of a refugee camp. They were born there. That is the only existence that they know. We have the profound privilege of welcoming these children in Jesus' name. We have countless other opportunities to welcome children in Jesus' name as well. Many of you are already doing that in practical ways. You have, you have the pictures of the children you are sponsoring right now. They're on your refrigerator, and you pray for them every day, and you write them letters. I believe that is welcoming children in Jesus' name. You can do that through child sponsorship, through Bible camp, through school involvement, through Sunday school, through VBS, through daily interactions, and of course, through literally welcoming children into your home, showing them that they matter, showing them that they are valued. Yes, my friends, we live in a troubled world, but we know the solution. Jesus is his name. So may we, his church, who bear his name, May we be a city of refuge. May we be a place of welcome for all those who need him. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that as you have called us, your children, through faith, that we would not go a day without a grateful heart for what you have done for us and that we would not go a day without considering how we may extend this invitation to others who do not yet know you. And so, Lord, may we take this seriously, this call that both ourselves individually and collectively as a church, that we would be a city of refuge, a place that could point to you the solution. That is Jesus Christ that in you there is no more distinctions. There is no room for discrimination, for racism, for showing favoritism. In you we are equal. We are equally loved. We are equally valued. And so Lord, thank you. Thank you that this is the way you have made us to live in harmony with one another. And so we pray that many more could experience this peace and this harmony that can be found only in you. So Lord Jesus, we pray that your will, your great will, And the will of your Father would be done in this world, even as it is in heaven. And we ask it in your name.